This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm joined by Wendy Perlman and Boaz Atzili, who wrote the book, Triadic Coercion, Israel's Targeting of States that Host Non-State Actors. Wendy Perlman is the Martin and Patricia Koldike Outstanding Teaching Associate Professor of Political Science at Northwestern University, and Boaz Atzili is Associate Professor and Director of the Doctoral Studies Program in the School of International Service at American University. Wendy and Boaz, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks a lot. So, Wendy, how did you and Boaz meet, and where did you two come up with the idea for this book? So, while Boaz and I had met in graduate school, the idea for the book came about when we both had postdoctoral fellowships at Harvard in 2007, 2008. And we had offices right across the hall from each other and would often talk about Middle East politics and these topics dear to both of our hearts and both of our research. And at this time, there were still a lot of conversations about the 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah, which had just ended and was still very much in the news and and very much uh, an active um, legacy that was having a big effect on the region. And there were many things about this war that was striking, but one that struck both of us is although it was primarily a war between Israel and Hezbollah as a non-state actor, in the course of the war, Israel also targeted the state of Lebanon, demanding that Lebanon take responsibility for stopping Hezbollah. So Hezbollah as a non-state actor is striking Israel from Lebanese soil. Israel does strike Hezbollah, but also says that the Lebanese state is responsible and needs to take action to stop Hezbollah. And you don't have to know much about Lebanon to know that it is a famously weak state with a famously weak army, that Hezbollah as a non-state actor is arguably militarily stronger than the state of Lebanon. So we both asked ourselves, why would Israel strike this weak state and think that would be an effective way of stopping a very non-state, a very strong non-state actor? And that got us thinking, why does any state strike a host state in the demand that it stop a non-state actor on its soil? When can that possibly be effective? When is it not effective? Why do states carry out this policy, even under conditions in which it would seem to be perhaps Uh, irrational strategically. So we started thinking, and we started to go back in time, thinking that if we looked back at Israel's long history of carrying out this uh, policy or strategy of 
trying to target states that host non-state actors, we could look for different patterns. And we started to go back and back. And we began looking and discovered that the entire history of the state of Israel from 1948, 1949 until the present, there has been this kind of strategic dilemma and strategic policy of targeting states that host non-state actors as a way of stopping those non-state actors. The book opens with a well-known quote from President George W. Bush on September 11th, where he says, We will make no distinction between the terrorists who committed these acts and those who harbor them. And this really speaks to the strategic view that you examine in this book. Can you start with explaining what is triadic coercion? So triadic coercion is the name that we gave to this particular strategic situation. While other authors may have referred to it implicitly or uh, even more directly, nobody had given a name to this particular kind of a contest between three actors. And that was one contribution that we really wanted to make, was put a name on it, to theorize it, and then to analyze it empirically. So triadic coercion is what we call the strat- that strategic situation in which a state targets militarily or threatens to, st- to strike militarily a state that is host to, to non-state actors as a way of compelling it to take action against those non-state actors or deterring it from, from aiding or abetting non-state actors. So essentially, rather than a state trying to target a non-state actor directly, um, in order to deter that non-state actor from carrying out attacks or to destroy that non-state actor or to fight that non-state actor, it shifts that asymmetric conflict between state and non-state actor to a more interstate dynamic in which it thinks in targeting another state, it can be more effective in getting that state as a host state to take action against the non-state actor as a way of combating it and preventing its violence. And Boaz, could you tell us how triadic coercion differs from deterrence theory or counterinsurgency studies? In the book, we are building on both of these uh, bodies of of literature, of ideas that came from the deterrence uh, studies and from counterinsurgency studies, but combining them in a way that is different than uh, both of these. Bodies. When we think about traditional deterrence studies, the number one important factor to consider is the balance of power between the two forces. So the, if you want to deter your enemy from doing something that they are about to do, you better be stronger than them in order to, uh, to do so. It's not sufficient to be stronger. You also need to communicate clearly, etc., but the uh, precondition for that is that you'll be uh, stronger than the other side. Our argument is that in cases of triadic coercion, in order to deter the states that host the non-state actors, it's much more nuanced because you actually need the state. Uh, if the state is too too weak, especially institutionally weak, it's unlikely to succeed in uh, doing your own bid in coercing the non-state actors to avoid attacking your own territory. The fact that you are stronger than your neighbor and you want them to stop action of non-state actors from their territory into yours is not sufficient. It's even if they understand that they're going to pay dearly for allowing the non-state actors to work against you, 
that's not enough for them to stop doing that. And that's very different than uh, the deterrent study. And from counterinsurgency, we we took some ideas from counterinsurgency, but basically counterinsurgency is about the action uh, of a state against uh, non-state actors. And again, in triadic coercion, you uh, you have a very different situation where a state is acting against another state and hoping that that second state will help it to coerce the non-state actor. Wendy, what are the key considerations when evaluating the effectiveness of triadic coercion? So in the book, we essentially have two guiding questions. One is, what determines the effectiveness of triadic coercion? And then secondly, why do states continue to use triadic coercion even under conditions in which it does not seem that it would be effective? So this question about effectiveness is our first grounding question on which the rest of the book builds. And here we offer an argument that taps directly into what Boaz was saying about deterrence theory. In some way, we're arguing that triadic coercion theory and effectiveness turns deterrence theory on its head. That whereas in deterrence theory, a state wants to be stronger than its adversary. And the greater that that gap in power, the weaker the adversary is vis-a-vis the coercer state, the more likely the coercer state is to be able to impose effective coercion. With triadic coercion, there's a distinction. The the host state that the coercer state needs to coerce actually, uh, or seeks to coerce, has to have a minimum level of regime strength in order for triadic coercion to be effective. So regime strength is the mediating variable that determines the effectiveness of this policy. So more specifically, we argue, basically that triadic coercion can only succeed when directed at a host state with regime strength. And then we conceptualize regime strength as basically having two elements, political cohesion and institutional capacity. And that's because a host state, in order to act effectively against a non-state actor and basically compel with or comply with the demands of this state that's issuing the coercion, its decision-making needs to be consolidated. It needs to be able to recognize that its national security interests lies in averting these coercive strikes and that its, its own national security is paramount and more important than any interest it might have in a non-state actor. So it has to have the sort of political cohesion to um, act upon raison d'etat. That's why it needs political cohesion internally, not that elites are fighting against each other and not able to uphold state interest. And additionally needs institutional capacity because it has to have the sheer competency to translate that national interest into effective policy and actually design measures against a non-state actor and implement them and especially implement them when there might be opposition both from the non-state actor and from its own domestic population that might be supportive of the non-state actor. So essentially when a, a host state has a weak regime, it lacks the political cohesion and institutional capacity to do what it needs to do to act against a non-state actor. And it's only when a host state has a strong regime that it is able to do so. In the end, then, our argument is that triadic coercion can only succeed against a host state with a strong regime. And when triadic coercion is used against a host state with a weak regime, it's likely to fail and might even backfire. 
So Boaz, why was Israel a good place to study triadic coercion? As Wendy said before, Israel is the the case that actually sparked our interest uh, with, with this con- uh, concept in the first place. But beyond that, we find that Israel is a really great lab to study this kind of relation or triadic relations, because Israel had not one set of triadic relations, but but multiple sets of triadic relations with all of its neighbors uh, throughout its uh, 70 years uh, of history. And, and there was a significant variation in a way that these neighbors uh, reacted to uh, Israel's policy. So on the one hand, we hold a lot of things uh, constant uh, by using uh, one case, uh, one uh, state of Israel. Also throughout this period that we're looking at, there's the basic balance of power is mostly uh, stay the same. The, uh, definitely changes in terms of, of magnitude, but Israel was the strongest actor uh, in any dyad between itself and any any neighboring country. Uh, but still we see a tremendous variation in terms of effectiveness uh, or lack thereof of triadic coercion. Uh, so we find that it uh, it did not work with Egypt in the uh, early 50s, but it worked with Egypt in the late 50s. It did not uh, did not work against Syria uh, in the 60s, but it did work in the 70s. So all of that created for us a really interesting and compelling lab, if you will, to look at uh, this uh, particular kind of relations. Can you tell us about strategic culture, its role in your work, and how you conceptualized Israel's strategic culture? As Wendy uh, mentioned before, the first puzzle that we're looking at is when is triadic coercion effective and when it's not likely to be effective. And the second one is, why is it the case uh, that uh, some states uh, continue to apply triadic coercion uh, when it's not effective? So in a sense, you can think about it as why is the doctor prescribing the same medication when it's not working and unlikely to work in in certain situation. And so that's where we come to this answer of strategic culture. And that was really something that we got into through through our research. We did not start uh, uh, working on the book uh, knowing that we're going to argue that it's about strategic culture, but that's where our research led us to believe. We conceptualize strategic culture in a, through two means. One is ideas, and the others, uh, the other is a process. So, if we look at the Israeli uh, strategic culture, Israel maintain a fairly stable, uh, consistent strategic cultures since the 1950s, which, despite the fact that Israel did not have an official doctrine, in the 1950s it created for itself a sort of like unofficial doctrine, which was based on on three concepts. The first one was deterrence, so Israel would, would need to deter its neighbors from attacking itself, so the assumption was that it lives in a hostile neighborhood. And the only way to to defend itself is basically to be stronger than all of its neighbors and to deter them from ever attacking it. A second one was early detection, 
in cases where deterrence, if deterrence doesn't work, uh, then Israel need to know as soon as possible what's going to happen and when the enemy is going to attack. And the third one uh, was that if a war does occur, Israel needs to act in an offensive way and through decisive, decisive offense, determine uh, the results of, of the fight on the territory of its neighbors. So that's something that was fairly persistent uh, through the years. What we see changing in that sense is in the 1990s, early 1990s, um, strategic thinkers in Israel, and I would say both in the IDF and outside of it, uh, are starting to notice uh, something that they could notice before, but uh, mostly notice in the 1990s, that Israel is now in a very different strategic environment. So on the one hand, the threat from neighboring countries is significantly reduced or almost non-existent. So Israel signed a treat, a peace treaties uh, with uh, both Egypt and Jordan, and Syria, which was a, a significant threat before, is no longer such a large threat because it lost its uh, its patron in the Soviet Union when the Soviet Union collapsed. And uh, Iraq, which was another uh, important and, and very formidable threat, it was defeated by the United States and no longer uh, poses a significant threat. And at that time, at that point in time, I, Iran is still too far away and not very uh, relevant in, in terms of threat. So on that one hand, Israel could feel itself to be much more secure in this uh, strategic environment. On the other hand, Israeli strategic thinkers also noticed that deterrence, which seemed to work pretty well against uh, non-state actors, neighbors, it works pretty well uh, against state actors, doesn't work at all against non-state actors. Despite the tremendous uh, a military superiority of Israel over many uh, of its uh, rival non-state actors, um, PLO, uh, Hezbollah, etc., it doesn't seem to deter them. So in that point in time, this, the thought started to develop that maybe the way to sort of like circumvent this problem of non-state actors is actually to move the ball back to the field in which uh, Israel is superior and in which Israel has a lot of experience, and that is the state-to-state -state interaction. So instead of trying to deter Hezbollah or, uh, or uh, Palestinian organizations uh, against attacking Israel, Israel instead could address and deter the state that hosts them and pressure and coerce the state that hosts them to stop the activity of the non-state actors. So it's sort of like a, they thought about it as a sort of like a magic bullet, in, if you will, to solve this problem of uh, the pesky non-state actors uh, that continue to be not deterred by Israel. And this process of, of, of this new idea was very much helped because of the uh, traditional processes that are part of uh, Israel's strategic culture, which uh, discourage deep thinking, in uh, in a sense, and encourage uh, improvisation, 
quick solutions uh, on the spot, and and also the fact that the that the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, it has a tremendous effect on the, on the process of decision making when it comes to security in Israel. If you compare it to any other uh, Western democracy, at least, uh, so this brought tragic coercion basically to become a major uh, factor in Israel's uh, strategic culture starting in the 1990s. And we see that already in uh, in several uh, large-scale operations uh, in Lebanon that Israel is trying to uh, to pressure uh, the Lebanese government in the 1990s uh, to act against Hezbollah. Uh, we see that later on uh, against the Palestinians uh, in in the uh, Second Intifada. And basically, there's increasingly a automatic action of Israel whenever it faces this kind of situation of triadic coercion, uh, it basically adapts this uh, policy without too much thinking about that. And so we think, we we argue that there are four uh, important factors uh, that basically shape this strategic culture, uh, Israeli strategic culture when it comes to triadic coercion. Uh, first, that there is in, in the Israeli thought regarding these triadic relations, really lack of nuances and differentiation uh, between different actors. So, so uh, really an ig- ignoring uh, this differentiation between strong regimes and, and the weak regimes in particular, which is crucial to the understanding of success and failure or likely success and failure of triadic coercion. So that's one. A second t- second uh, is uh, targeting the enemy's consciousness in, increasingly. That's the argument that uh, that uh, Israel is uh, taking, targeting the enemy's consciousness rather than its uh, interest or, or its action. Second, increasingly, uh, Israel thinks and talks in terms of logic of appropriateness rather than the logic of consequences. So it's not... I'm doing that because that's the right thing to do, because that's that's the thing that we should do, uh, rather than that because it will likely to work. Uh, so that becomes a, an important uh, factor as well. Wendy, can you tell us what role does the military establishment and specifically intelligence play in strategic decisions regarding deterrence? In, in the Israeli case, the, the military apparatus and the security establishment plays what we call an outsized role in security decision-making. And this is a crucial factor in shaping Israeli strategic culture, as Boaz has just described. In, in many other democracies, there are civilian intelligence and strategic advising institutions, like in the United States, a civilian national security council that advises the president and the executive on strategic matters. In the Israeli case, it is the security establishment in general, and really the IDF in particular, that both gather information analyze and assess the information and present recommendations to the government, which typically approves them and accepts them. And there are not counterweights to the military that might provide strategic um, advising from a less militaristic set of assumptions. 
And we argue that that then feeds into the strategic culture in which Israel is very often quick to see strictly military solutions to strategic problems as opposed to other types of solutions. And it's sort of the case in which Israel has a strong army hammer, and then we argue almost sees all these strategic problems as nails that need to be hammered with force and often disproportionate force, often with, you know, the more force, the better. And that if it were a different institution informing security and strategic decision-making, it might take different sorts of, uh, of options and consider them more seriously than they, than they do. So the way intelligence figures into this story is it, it, in some ways we, you know, we find that Israel is, is quick to rely on, on force and often disproportionate force, whereas it could rely more heavily on the excellent intelligence that it has and it has the capacity of gathering and, and use other measures besides military threats and military strikes. In that sense, the problem, again, of, of intelligence is that it's the army that gathers it, the army that interprets it, and the army that offers its interpretations so that intelligence is seen through a particular lens that's tinted by the strategic culture that we've seen developing um, over decades and decades. Another element that's important to think about with intelligence, as Boaz was just saying, is that there's this kind of weak intellectual, even what some people call an anti-intellectual tradition. In, um, in Israeli security decision-making, that there's this preference on doing rather than thinking. And so even when intelligence is, is gathered, there's not big paradigm-shifting thinking about the big picture of, of, of questioning assumptions and, and, and preconceived notions of reevaluating some um, ideas that there's often a sense of, of act quick and do rather than think. So in many ways, we don't think that intelligence is, is given the attention and seriousness that it could have in the strategic decision-making process. And, um, and there's just too quick and too forceful a result on, on military force. And another element, I guess, given our emphasis in strategic culture is intelligence itself doesn't act. Intelligence itself doesn't speak. Intelligence has to be interpreted. And that's where strategic culture really comes in. Any piece of security intelligence could be understood in different ways. And culture, the inherited ideas and assumptions, um, the preconceived notions um, that that are often existent in, in the minds and approaches of decision makers without them even being aware that they're there, colors how they make sense of intelligence and the decisions that they make about what to do with that intelligence. And that is where we see strategic culture coming in quite forcefully in Israeli history in encouraging Israeli decision makers to want to use triadic coercion even against states where it's unlikely to be effective because those host states have weak regimes. So I'd like to turn to the case studies. Wendy, could you start us off with talking about how triadic coercion factored in Israel's relationship with Egypt? Yeah. So um, as Boaz was saying in terms of why we thought Israel was a great case study, what we love about the case studies we look at is that there's both variation within each case in terms of the, the 
variation in the strength of the host regime, and also a lot of variation between the cases in terms of the effectiveness of uh, Israel's use of triadic coercion against these host states. So to start with Egypt, we really see this internal variation across Egyptians, Egyptian history and Egypt's triadic coercion relationship with Israel. So in the beginning, there is a large uh, Palestinian refugee population in the Gaza Strip, which is Egyptian-administered and right on the border with Israel. Um, from 1949 onward, you have this case of what Israeli decision-makers call infiltrations, largely Palestinian refugees that are violating the borders and going, walking, and moving into Israel proper from Gaza. These begin largely apolitical. They're often refugees going to harvest fields or tend their sheep or without political motives are are moving into Israel proper and with time gradually form guerrilla groups and political organizations that seek to move into Israel, carry out attacks with a more political motive. Well, we really see those groups come to the fore more in Jordan and in Syria. So from the earliest years of statehood, Israel is clearly signaling to Egypt that it is responsible for maintaining the border security and that Israel will hold Egypt responsible for any violations of that border. In the beginning years after Israeli statehood, Egypt is ruled by King Farouk. It's still a monarchy. Monarchy That king is much too weak to really uh, maintain the border and and prevent any infiltrations onto the other side. His regime is riddled by internal rivalries. There's a very small state apparatus. Under these conditions, when Israel tries to threaten or coerce the king to stop infiltrations, they simply fail. The king would like to stop, doesn't want any infiltrations any more than Israel does, does not want any kind of conflict with Israel, but simply doesn't have the cohesion or the capacity to carry that out. Uh, where we see a tremendous change is after Gamal Abdel Nasser comes to power as the president of Egypt. Uh, the free officers overthrow the monarchy in 1952, but it's really after 1956 that we see a surge in Gamal Abdel Nasser's power and, and the strength of his regime. His power grows personally with the huge amount of sort of charisma and prestige he has, not just in Egypt, but throughout the Arab world, especially after 1956 and the Suez War and Nasser's success in forcing Israel, France, and Britain to back down in that war. He successfully marginalizes all of his domestic rivals, consolidates his power. He expands the army and the state apparatus. And it is under those conditions that Nasser's able to really impose controls on the border. He cracks down on Palestinian groups. He removes Palestinian armed actors from the Gaza and puts them in Sinai far away. And it's because Nasser, despite his strong rhetoric against Israel and his strong rhetoric about Palestine liberation, Nasser knows that he is does not want to uh, get involved in a war with Israel that he can't win. He certainly doesn't want to get a war involved in a war with Israel that's not on his own terms. Maybe Egypt can choose the timing of a conflict or choose, choose the conditions of any sort of uh, engagement with Israel, but it doesn't want to get dragged into a war by Palestinian actors that have their own agendas and their own goals. So he cracks down on those non-state actors because he recognizes it's not in Egypt's national interest to get dragged into conflicts, not of it their choosing. 
And he has the capacity to carry out those interests by taking the actions he needs against those non-state actors. So in that condition, triadic coercion is effective. Nasser understands the threat from Israel, recognizes what's in national state interests, and acts accordingly. So we see the shift from a weak host regime to a strong host regime, and triadic coercion fails in the first situation, becomes successful after the second sort of shift in circumstances. And that is what we see holding in Egypt for decades after that, until, of course, after the Egyptian-Israeli peace treaty transforms a situation from two hostile adversaries to two countries that have peaceful relations. And you mentioned Syria. Can you tell us about how triadic coercion played out there? Yes. So Syria, unlike Egypt, did not have a strong or large Palestinian refugee community on the border. So the there was not the same issue of, of infiltrations or Palestinians crossing back into their former homes and what became Israel. Um, where triadic coercion really emerges is when you begin to have this development of Palestinian guerrilla groups. Um, first, Fetah that emerges in 1965, and then other Palestinian groups that grow throughout the 1960s and then consolidate into the PLO in 1969. And you have these Palestinian guerrilla groups become quite active in Syria. And this is in large part because of the nature of the regime that emerges in Syria in the 1960s. So in the 1963, the Ba'ath Party uh, overthrow the existing government in Syria and create a really radical regime that becomes a key supporter of the Palestinian guerrilla movement. But this, we argue, wasn't simply a manifestation of Ba'ath ideology, that favored Palestine liberation and had that as a key element of their thinking, but it was also very much reflective of the very weakness of that Ba'ath regime. So what we saw in the Egyptian case was that regime weakness simply reduced the ability of the government to restrict Palestinian crossings of the border. In the Syrian case, weakness of the host regime played this additional role. It actually created new incentives for government elites, in this case, competing Ba'ath officials and officers that each wanted to support guerrilla activity to lend their support to Palestinian groups, actually expanding opportunities for Palestinian guerrilla groups to operate as a way of competing against each other. So the very fragmentation of the regime creates a situation in which those government officials have every reason to champion the Fedayeen or the guerrilla groups and encourage and and facilitate their attacks on Israel um, as a form of domestic competition. And there was no centralized authority of, of the Syrian regime at this point to say, wait, this is not in Syria's national state interests. When, when Palestinian groups cross the border from Syria into Israel, Israel responds and strikes Syria with overwhelming force. There was no hard center to say Syria's national interest is to cut down these non-state actors. That doesn't emerge until 1970 when Hafez al-Assad seizes power within that Ba'ath regime and establishes an extremely strong authoritarian regime in which Assad immediately recognizes that to protect Syria, it needs to make sure nothing happens over that border. And Assad will then support Palestinian groups or Lebanese groups or other groups that will strike Israel far from Syrian soil, but it 
He does not allow another violation to happen over the Syrian border. He removes Palestinian groups from the border. He prevents them from carrying out attacks. He also cracks down on them, confiscates weapons, does whatever he needs to do because he has the political cohesion in a very strong authoritarian regime in which power is centralized in his person and the infrastructural capacity with his control over a vast army and security networks and, and a growing burgeoning state apparatus to, to, to carry out those policies. He says any, any, not, he does not want any non-state actors to drag Syria into a conflict with Israel not on Syria's choice and Syria's timing, and that strong regime allows that to happen. So again, triadic coercion fails when the regime in Syria, the host state, is is internally fragmented and institutionally weak, and as it grows politically cohesive and institutionally strong, triadic coercion is effective, and you have no more non-state actors from Syria violating or attacking Israel. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. While not an independent state, you found applications in Israel's relationship with the Palestinian Authority. What did you observe there? So the Palestinian Authority is a very interesting case for us. And exactly as you were saying, it's not an independent state, but in Israel's triadic relationship, in many ways, treats the PA as if it were. And it looks to the Palestinian Authority and um, under PA President Yasser Arafat and says, you as the authority that governs now in these areas of the West Bank and Gaza Strip that have been delivered to your new PA jurisdiction, you are responsible for any actions and any violence that happens there. And the, the chief actors of anti-Israel violence in the 1990s are opposition groups, groups that are opposed to the PA, of chiefly Hamas, also Islamic Jihad. So these are groups that are opposed to the Oslo process. They're opposed to the very creation of the PA. Their opposition to Arafat in Israel continually says, you know, Arafat, you're responsible for what happens there. And if Hamas is to carry out suicide bombings and so forth, the PA is going to be held responsible. So we trace the evolution of this triadic relationship throughout the early 1990s. At first, Israel regards the PA something of a partner, a skeptical, you know, a suspicious partner, but sees it more as a partner in peace and then and then loses more and more confidence in, in the PA's uh, uh, willingness to stop violence as time goes on. And where we see uh, triadic coercion uh, and the strategic culture of triadic coercion really um, sort of exploding is in the case of the second intifada. So whereas in our case studies on Egypt and Syria and those, those chapters, we really are focused on what explains the effectiveness of triadic coercion. Our chapter on the Palestinian Authority is the first of our empirical chapters in which we dive into this question of what explains the use of triadic coercion, even when it's uh, not effective, and how does Israel's strategic culture condition this effect? So that's where we see 
Israel's use of triad of coercion against the Palestinian Authority, especially in the first years of the Second Intifada, beginning in fall 2000, and how that strategic culture conditions and shapes and influences what Israel does. So those four elements of strategic culture that Boaz had discussed, a belief that that the use of force is not simply instrumental in utility. It's not simply a means to an end, but an end in itself. You take strong action because you need to show strength, almost using military force against an adversary for its own sake. That's one. Two, the lack of nuance or differentiation, that all of these Arab rivals are the same. Whatever is the Palestinian Authority, the Palestinian Authority Security Forces, FETA as an organization, the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade as one sort of FETA militia, and Hamas and Jihad, they're kind of all the same, hit the Palestinians, and the PA just needs to take care of it. Um, this targeting of the enemy consciousness, this third element, is extremely strong in the Second Intifada. You begin to have hear this rhetoric of Israelis will need to sear into Palestinian consciousness the lesson that Israel will never give in to force. Um, you need to teach the Palestinians a lesson once and for all that Israel will never back down and the Palestinians need to accept Israel's ex- existence. And then finally, this logic of appropriateness. Israel has the right to defend itself. Israel has the right to hold Palestinians accountable rather than thinking, will bombing a Palestinian security force security installation actually do more good than harm? Or in targeting the PA, do you encourage those security force officers who work for the Palestinian government to take off their uniforms and join uh, resistance organizations and start carrying out bombings against against Israel rather than thinking that there's any good in working for the security of the Palestinian Authority state and 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 trying to calm the situation. So the PA is a, is this case where we really see the security culture coalescing in a strong way and and encouraging the use of triadic coercion even under conditions in which it will not be strategically effective. And it is in that context in which Israel moves into the 2006 war in Lebanon that was the original inspiration for our book. And we see strategic culture um, taking on a whole new level of intensity in the triadic coercion realm. And how has the Arab Spring changed the strategic landscape? Yeah, so the Arab Spring is a bit outside our um, our our direct research, but what we find has implications. And that if the in the Arab Spring we're seeing a weakening of host states and host regimes, that regimes that are beleaguered. So Sisi in Egypt, although establishing a regime that's in, increasingly brutal and authoritarian, there's a tremendous economic crisis. Um, there is a, a struggle, uh, you know, to 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 get Israel or to get Egypt back on its footing. And in that context, you have this insurgency in the Sinai that has primarily targeted Egyptian um, uh, installations, but also has implications for Israel. Um, you have Syria, in which uh, the although the Assad regime has has managed to hold on, uh, lost control over huge amounts of its territory has now littered by uh, by external actors, whether it's Iranian or Hezbollah or um, Turkish or others that now effectively are on Syrian soil and, and calling the shots. Um, so in an Arab Spring environment in which the states on Israel's borders are, are suffering 
new challenges that weaken their capacity, we warn that this is a situation of weak host regimes. And should there be non-state actors on the soil of these countries that strike Israel from these host states, it would be disastrous for Israel to return to the rhetoric of holding host states responsible for those non-state actors because these host states are beleaguered, are weakened, are under uh, tremendous struggle, and they are not under, uh, they do not have the capacity or the cohesion to do as, as Israel would demand, and striking them under these conditions could backfire and, and do more harm than good in the interests of Israel's own security. Boaz, could you tell us about triadic coercion in terms of Israel's relationship with Lebanon? Yeah, so as we mentioned before, and as kind of common knowledge, Lebanon is a very uh, weak uh, state, and it contains within its territory, has been containing uh, significant non-state actors that are strong, and in some cases stronger than the state itself. So if we're talking about the PLO uh, in the uh, in the 1970s and 80s and uh, Hezbollah since the 1980s. In earlier uh, decades and basically until the 1990, Israel acknowledged the fact that Lebanon is controlled by a very weak state, and therefore the Israeli uh, action against Lebanon, even though sometimes a very severe uh, was mostly targeted at assets of uh, of the of the non-state actors themselves. Uh, so, in for instance, in the invasion of 1982, Israel targeted PLO uh, targets, and later on, Syrian targets when uh, when Syria sort of like got in the way. Uh, but basically, that was not case of triadic coercion. Where we see the map starting to change is in the 1990s, when Israel, as I discussed before, started to get all of these ideas of triadic coercion as something that you ought to do in situation of, of triadic relations, as something that you automatically do in this kind of situation without thinking about it too much. So, so in the 1990s, we see two large-scale operations by Israeli forces uh, against basically trying to put pressure on Lebanon so that Lebanon in turn uh, will put pressure on Hezbollah and Hezbollah will stop attacking mostly on Israeli soldiers on the, uh, that were uh, occupying southern Lebanon. None of these operations actually worked and the situation came back to the status quo ante or, or even worse from the point of view of Israel. And eventually, Israel withdrew from Lebanon, uh, from Lebanese territory in 2000, and uh, took back its forces, its uh, armed forces, to the internationally recognized uh, borders called the Blue Line. But then Hezbollah basically takes over the entire south of Lebanon. Uh, so you have a non-state organization that effectively control a territory in the south of Lebanon. Despite the fact that Hezbollah was uh, holding this territory, for the uh, the first six years uh, in, the, in the new century, 
the border was fairly quiet. So there were some exchanges of fire from time to time, some clashes, but it was fairly quiet. And that changed dramatically in uh, the summer of uh, 2006 with the Hezbollah operation of uh, infiltrating uh, across the border fence and ambushing an IDF uh, patrol, killing some of the soldiers and abducting others and taking them into uh, Lebanese uh, soil. So as early as several hours after the Hezbollah abduction of the Israeli soldiers that kind of precipitated the war, the IDF started to push very hard for a complete adoption of triadic coercion. It was only later on mitigated by American opposition. One episode that I think for me epitomizes this strategic culture of triadic coercion is when the IDF chief of staff, Dan Halutz, is appearing before the Israeli cabinet at the beginning of the war, and he lays down the IDF's plan for, for the war. And I'm quoting here. So he's saying, we tell them, pay attention. And then they, he means uh, Lebanon, the Lebanese government. Pay attention. The electricity supply will start to decrease by small portions. The fuel will stop flowing in portions. We will present steps. 10%, 25, 30, 70, 100. I don't know a stronger signal for taking responsibility. So one of the ministers participated in the cabinet uh, meeting, then asked the chief of staff if the government in Beirut had the capacity to stop Hezbollah even if it wanted to. That, Halut said, reportedly, is not my business. So to us, I think that response is really the heart of the issue. It's triadic coercion in which the outcome is no longer important, just whether your actions are tough enough in your own mind to project power, whether or not it, it's, it's uh, working uh, or not. That was the, the policy the IDF tried to push uh, in, uh, in the war in 2006, and it was only adapted, adapted partially because of a very strong American pressure on the prime minister to avoid that because the, the U.S. had uh, an ally actually uh, heading the Lebanese, uh, uh, Lebanese government, Fuad Senora, and they didn't want their allies in Lebanon to be, uh, to be the target of Israeli retaliation. So the official uh, policy was different, but nevertheless, through sort of like creeping uh, implementation of triadic coercion, in the end, uh, the IDF did uh, get to target uh, many of the assets of the Lebanese government, roads, uh, bridges, uh, refineries, electricity, uh, infrastructure, etc., uh, airport. So some of this uh, policy was implemented uh, nevertheless. What we see after the 2006 war, and, and, and I should add that this didn't really work because Hezbollah was more powerful than the Lebanese uh, government. So the war dragged on until Hezbollah itself thought that, uh, that it had enough, and, and Israel as well. What we see since 2006 is interesting uh, because it seems like the Israeli security establishment 
learned basically the wrong lessons uh, from from the war. And when you hear Israeli uh, spokesperson or even uh, generals uh, in the military speak about northern border, uh, they basically say very straightforwardly, in the next war, we're not going to target Hezbollah. In the next war, we're going to target Lebanon directly uh, because Lebanon is responsible for whatever Hezbollah is doing uh, from its territory. So that's the the uh, kind of the core of triadic coercion, and and that is despite the fact that in practice Lebanon, as a state, it has very little power over Hezbollah. What lessons can policymakers take from this work? We we highlight two lessons which reflect our two driving questions and what we hope will be the two main contributions of this book regarding both the effectiveness of triadic coercion and the drivers of this policy in the first place. So on that first element, as we argue that that triadic coercion can only be effective against a host state with a strong regime, our main lesson to policymakers is not to use it against states host states that have weak regimes. And this, we think, is you know might seem simple, but as we show in the Israeli case, it's often used again and again and again in violation of that principle under conditions in which it's unlikely to be successful. We think that's because states that are trying to stop non-state actors and thinking of, of implementing triadic coercion often focus only on host states' preferences. They think, is that host state with us or against us? Does that host state... Is the host state allied with the non-state actor? Does the host state support the non-state actor? And we see that as being exclusively in the realm of preferences and ideas. And what we're saying is it's not simply the host state's preferences or policy outlook or alliances that matter. It's the host state's regime strength. So even if a host state is against the non-state actor, if the host state is too weak, if its regime is not capable, it's not going to be able to act against it. And even when the host state is actually in favor of the non-state actor and the host state is hostile to the coercer state, if its regime is strong enough, it's going to respond to coercive threats because it's going to recognize that its own national security interests and its own regime interests lie with answering to the coercive threats and it won't allow a non-state actor to jeopardize its state security or its regime security. So in, for states that are thinking of carrying out triad coercion as a policy and striking the states that host non-state actors, they must look not just at the host state's preferences, but also at their regime strength and more specifically at these elements of political cohesion and institutional capacity. So that's our first main lesson. Our second lesson regards strategic culture. And we we want to highlight and raise awareness that decisions and strategies that, that decision makers might think are rational, they might think are necessary, could be not simply the result of strategic calculations in a quote-unquote objective sense, but could be influenced by these inherited assumptions and ways of looking at the world and dispositions and institutionally reinforced attitudes and ingrained ideas that are representative of a strategic culture more than being strategically rational for the situation at hand. And that 
both elites that make decisions as politicians and elites in military and security realms and the media and the population and civil society and all those who might support one policy or another should be hyper aware of this issue of strategic culture and things that they advocate as being advantageous or being rational or as being necessary might be driven by a kind of instinct and that everyone involved in society and in political decision-making should try to subject some of these instincts to critical scrutiny, to institutional counterweights, that there should be within a, a political landscape enough different types of bodies that can weigh in on policy options. So there's no one institution that has a monopoly on strategic decision-making and that there's no one mindset that has a monopoly on decision-making ideas. Um, that strategic culture is an issue and, and, and policies that are taken out um, need to be thought of critically and especially to have awareness of those four elements of strategic culture that we see as particularly problematic that lead decision makers to take out actions because they're inherently useful as opposed to simply being means to an end um, that force shouldn't be taken out because it's appropriate as opposed to being actually useful and and all these other types of issues that can really get in the way of decision making that we see as being rational and ultimately creating peace and security for all peoples involved in conflict. Thank you both for being on the show today. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having us. Triadic Coercion, Israel's targeting of states that host non-state actors by Wendy Perlman and Boaz Atzili is available now from Columbia University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books and National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.